make it? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. And we didn't. My, my optimism got the best of me and because the car was dead about half a mile from the exit ramp. Um, it's in moments like these when you're, you're walking a mile to, to pick up some gas for your dead car or you're, you're running to the store for uh, batteries because your, your kid's toy is dead or when you look in, look in the fridge um, and you only discover it's empty again and it's only been a few days, these are moments when we think, you know, everything in this world is limited. Everything in this world is limited. Limited energy, limited time, limited resources, limited health, limited number of days, limited understanding. We had a uh, memorial service um, for Kylie's grandmother, my wife's grandmother, 94 years old. And no one was thinking, 94 years old, what a shame. You know, she, she died so young. No, she didn't. She had a full life, which was chock full of great experiences, and she had a history during that time. So, she, uh, but she, as she was nearing the end of her life, uh, she was very frail, and uh, one by one, her organs began to shut down. Uh, that's a picture of what it's like for a human being to run out of fuel. A picture of the limits of being human. Moses had his first encounter with the one and only one who is unlimited. He was up on uh, a mountain called Mount Horeb tending his flock when something literally out of this world caught his eye. A, a bush without the usual limitations. A bush that was on fire but wasn't being consumed by that fire. And suddenly, God spoke, spoke to him out of the midst of the fire. So as the conversation goes on, God tells Moses that the cries of, of, of his people have come up to him, and he's seen the afflictions that they're under, and he tells his plan to, to rescue them and to bring them into the promised land. And he's going to use none other than this little old Moses to, to accomplish all that. Well, Moses reacts like most of us would. And uh, he has two questions for him. The first one, who am I? I'm just a, I'm just a dude uh, tending his sheep in the middle of nowhere up on this mountain. I have no business standing before um, one of the world's most powerful men to lay before him the most audacious claims. In other words, Moses is very aware of his limitations that are highlighted in big bold letters when he compares himself to Pharaoh. Well, God answers, I'll be with you, and you'll know that I was with you when my people gather on this very mountain to worship me. Fair enough. Moses had a second question, and it's found in Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what's his name? Then what should I tell them? 
Listen to this. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to be remembered for all generations. Well, I can just imagine Moses hearing the the crackling coming from that burning bush while those words hung in the air. Seeing it, hearing it, smelling it maybe. Because the, the bush that kept burning without being consumed, without being burned up during this entire conversation was an object lesson. It served as an object of lesson of what God was revealing about himself. And that is this, in a few short sentences, God has just described his essence, his nature. He's basically saying, Moses, from all eternity, I am unlike anything in this world. Unlike you, I don't depend on anything. Unlike you, I don't depend on anyone in this world for strength, in this world for energy, in this world for security, in this world for joy, in this world for satisfaction. None of it. I am totally and completely self-reliant, self-existent. I never run out of energy. I never get hungry. I never think, oh, if I only had more time. Or, oh, if I only had more resources. No, no, no. For all eternity, I am outside of this world's physical laws and and physical limitations. I am the eternal, unchanging one. And I don't say, I was who I was, or I will be who I will be. No, no, no. I am who I am. I have no past or future, but only an eternal present. (laughs) That's, That's why the most fitting name for me is this. I am. (laughs) Wrap Wrap your brain around that for just a bit. It's mind boggling. Outside this world with all of its limitations, unchanging, self existent, eternally present. Well, you know how this episode in redemptive history unfolds. God, in a way that that only God who lives outside of our limitations could do, supernaturally rescues his people through the parting of the Red Sea. They begin this journey journey to uh, the promised land. And and you know what? They, they, They all lived happily ever after, right? Wrong. Over the next 1,500 years, more often than not, Israel showed their loyalty to a limited people, to limited things, to limited resources, instead of loyalty to an unlimited God. Isaiah 31 puts, it, puts their habit of thinking this way, behaving this way, this way. Verse, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, 
and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Well, guess what? We do the very same thing, all of us in this room. As, especially as Americans living in the 21st century. And one of the world's wealthiest, most powerful nations. We're comfortable. We are the, the very epitome of self-reliant. We're independent. We're proud of it. And in our comfort and in our self-reliance and in our independence, we develop an attitude that says, we got this, God. When in fact, we don't got this. Human beings are limited beings who were made to be in a relationship with an unlimited God. But by our disloyalty and faithlessness to him, we betrayed the one who made us for himself. We need the great I am to repair what we broke. We need the great I am to reconcile ba us back to himself. We needed a savior. We needed a, a messiah. Enter Jesus. In the gospels, the, the religious leaders are constantly trying to figure out who Jesus is or who he claims to be, especially in John's gospel. So in John chapter eight, he's having a, uh, pretty intense discussion with some of them, and, and the topic of Abraham comes up, and the topic of eternal life comes up, like life without limits. So um, it's found in John 8, uh, 53 to 59. It says this, uh, again, uh, this is uh, the religious leaders speaking. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it's my Father who will glorify me. You say, he is our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and it was and, and he saw it and was glad. The people said, "You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham?" Jesus answered, "Get this? I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am." At that at that point they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. By his statement, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am, Jesus is making himself equal with God. Now, now if, if that's false, which it would be for anyone besides Jesus, that's blasphemy, and that, that's why they pick up the stones. But for Jesus, it isn't. It's, it's not blasphemy because it's true. He is co-equal with God. C.S. Lewis famously puts it so well in his um, famous book. He writes, 
I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to, to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, uh, I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus would, um, Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. So you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So John, in his gospel, includes seven distinct instances of Jesus claiming to be the I am. These are the seven I am statements of Jesus. I think I've, I've got, a, got them up here for on a slide. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true, the true vine. Not I was or I have been. Not I will be. No. He's saying, I am all of these things. Eternally present. So more than his desire to, to be remembered in the past for what he, what he has done, more than his desire to be hoped for in the future, Jesus longs for us to experience him in, in these ways, in the here and now, in the present. And so over these uh, next seven weeks, starting today, we're going to unpack each one of these. So for the, rem uh, the remainder of our time this morning, we're, we're going to sp uh, spend some time looking at Jesus' claim to be the bread of life. So it, it's found in uh, John six twenty-two to 58. Uh, just to give you a little context, uh, Jesus has just performed that, uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and uh, he's, he's uh, just miraculously walked on water, um, and he, um, yeah, it's in verse 22 through 58, Okay. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on, uh, on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken on the only boat, and they realized Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. 
But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want to, uh, we w- we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave, gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me, even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those, those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread of life, uh, uh, the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? But Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said. For no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me. And at the last day, I will raise them up. As it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father, only I, who was sent from God, have seen him. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who, who eats this bread will, never, will live forever. And this bread which I will offer, uh, I'm sorry, and, and this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me in the same way anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. 
I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. So, notice one of the first things Jesus, Jesus uh, addresses. He addresses our tendency to rely on limited things instead of the unlimited one we were all made for. Verse 27, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend, spend energy in seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give. We all have physical appetites. And about an hour from now, or less, maybe it's happening now, your stomach will begin to rumble and remind you that you have a physical appetite. But as, as image bearers, as, as people who have been made in the image of God, and what keeps us from becoming animals, we have much deeper appetites, our spiritual appetites, things like uh, an appetite for meaning, an appetite for purpose, an appetite for joy, an appetite for sig significance. All of these appetites are not evil. They're not bad. No, no, no. They are God-given. God designed us to have these very appetites. But where things go um, funky and we sort of become distorted and, dare I say, sinful, is when we choose anything other than God to, to satisfy these core appetites. Whether it's, with, whether it's your job or career, whether, you, whether it's your uh, intellect, whether it's your uh, retirement account, your, your physique, uh, it could be a, a good cause that you're committed to. That, that's one of the central ways sin manifests itself. It's, that's idolatry, plain and simple. When we look to these lesser things instead of God to satisfy these core appetites. Ephesians 2, verses one, and 1, 4, and 5 say this. And you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's totally and completely an act of God's lavish, generous grace that we are alive again. So how do, how do we eat what God has graciously given? We believe. We believe in the one who came down to, to give life. What does that mean, believe? I think there's a, a real culture of easy believism out there that treats Jesus kind of like death insurance. 
I'm covered now, and I, so I can basically live the life I want, right? Policies here. Now, gen, genuine belief is, is not simply giving intellectual assent to something, putting our signature on that life insurance policy. Uh, it, it's a life that's marked by wholehearted devotion to God, loyal to, loyalty to the great I am. So when we, when, we, when we have genuine belief, when we have genuine faith, our relationships, our careers, what we do with our spare time, our choices with our money, our talents, our attitudes, our responses to stress, all align to that belief. What does that, what does it look like practically to eat? Um, in, in talking about the, the, the feast in the parable of the prodigal son, Tim Keller writes, a meal fuels growth through nourishment. In order to survive, and grow, and grow, individuals must eat regularly. That's what we must do with the gospel of the grace of God. We must personally appropriate it, making it more central to everything we see, think, and feel. That is how we grow spiritually in wisdom, joy, love, and peace. So if our spiritual growth is making the gospel more central to everything we see, think, and feel, how, how does this feasting happen? There are three types. Table for two, family dinners, snacking. I'll unpack those. Let's uh, jump into table for two first. Our growth, our spiritual growth, requires spiritual eating and drinking alone with God. Mark uh, 135 <clears throat> says about Jesus, in rising very, very early in the morning while, while it was still dark, he departed, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place and there he prayed. It says it all over the place in the Gospels. One-on-one -on -one time is a vital ingredient in any relationship. Um, let's just take Marriage, for example. Without regular alone time, uh, intimacy suffocates. Doesn't have any air to breathe. You can say, you know, we spend plenty of time together as a family. But without quality time, without quality alone time, really knowing one another as close... Um, and being known by one another, it just, it just doesn't happen. After a while, you end up being like roommates who happen to sleep in the same bed. But when you spend regular quality time together, it could be as simple as leaving the phone in the other room, leaving the TV off for a while, and just catching up with one another. You what you've done is created space for one another. You've, you've um, given it air. Well, that, that's true in marriage, true in, in a parent-child relationship. With, with, without regular quality time, alone time, your child will eventually come to, to see you as just an, a, an authority figure. 
the, the one who lays down the law. You, and you, the parent, will likely uh, come to see your, as your child um, a, as someone who just makes your life difficult. So resent, resentment begins to grow both ways. I, I have uh, personally found that the greatest cure against resentment in my relationship with my kids is finding some alone time with each of them. One-on-one, it breathes air into the relationship. The kids begin to have a renewed vision of, of me as their parent as more than a, an authority figure, which I am, but as a loving authority figure. And the parents begin to see their role as parents not as, as a burden, but as a joy, as a privilege. So it's, it's no wonder why God doesn't, uh, why uh, God compares himself again and again throughout scripture like a husband to a wife, like a father to a child. Without that quality one-on-one time, intimacy suffocates. And that's why table for two is so important. So where do we, where, where do we begin you can begin by, by committing time daily to be with him. Uh, approach that time out of your true restored identity, not, not as uh, guilty con- and condemned, but as forgiven, as cleansed. Not a disappointment to God, but rejoiced over not a worm, but a son, a daughter. Uh, you can invite God to, to speak to you, to guide you, to, to stir your affections as you listen to him. And then y- you can digest what you read with God. Ask, ask questions. What, what, does, what does this particular part of Scripture say about God? What does it say about me? And what am I going to do with it? What am I going to change as a result? So you can acknowledge questions, fears, doubts. Speak these to God. Affirm what is beautiful. Affirm what is true. And be still. Don't rush off to the next thing. You know, this is like chewing the food. Savor it. Absorb it. So that's the first. That's the first first way we practice belief in Jesus is by hearing from him, by communing with him intimately, one-on-one. Our growth requires spiritual eating and drinking alone with God. Number two, family dinner. Our growth requires spiritual eating and drinking with one another. Um, one, one time, um, Kylie, uh, this is years ago, Kylie decided to take the kids away to her parents, so I decided to treat myself to a real meat and potatoes dinner. Um, I grilled some steak tips, I mashed up some potatoes, sat down and ate, and I'll tell you, I was done in about 12 minutes. The, the meal was over. 
It was very strange. Physically, it's not necessary to eat with others. Your, your body gets nourished by what you're eating physically. But spiritually, it's not the same. Who we eat with is part of the meal. The, the Jesus in us, in, in you, it has a nourishing effect on one another. Without others, we become malnourished. Then uh, our, our relationship with, with Jesus just becomes, oh, it's just me and Jesus. It's just vertical. No, no, no. Jesus said, I, I came to destroy uh, the vertical wall, but also the horizontal wall as well. We were meant for community. So without others, we become mal malnourished. It's, it's, a, it's like a diet that isn't balanced. Eating lots of grains, lots of bread, no vegetables. So God takes his word, his truth, his grace, and he, and he puts flesh on it. He did this completely and perfectly with, with Jesus. Jesus says, the spirit that has been near, near you will be in you. In other words, if you are in Christ, that's an important qualifier. If you have believed in Christ, your body is now a temple. You and I incarnate him everywhere we go. So, so Christian community is not simply who we eat and grow with. Christian community, community is part of the what we're eating. God's word takes on flesh so we can see it and hear it in one another. It becomes um, something that we spiritually digest. Our very lives become part of the meal for others, and, and their lives, your lives, become part of the meal for me. That's why the, the, the author of Hebrews, uh, I mentioned this last week, says this, and let us consider how to stir one another up to, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. We need one another. So, our growth requires family dinners. Who are you eating with? It's happening right here, right now, but whether it's a community group, whether it's um, meeting informally with, with other brothers and sisters on a regular basis, whether it's um, connect upstairs on Friday mornings, something, some way, you need to be with one another. You really do. That's, that's the family dinners. So table for two, family dinners, snacking. Our growth requires spiritual eating and drinking on the go. For those of you who have been hiking, yeah, especially this time of year, you know the value of snacking. You're expending uh, a high degree of energy over a sustained amount of time. So you, you need more than breakfast. You need some snacks along the way. 
Well, life is like a very long hike. Every day, you and I face things, uh, obstacles. Obstacles like shame for our past mistakes. Um, Self-worth questions. I feel worthwhile if I'm performing well, achieving a lot of at work. I feel worthless if I don't. I feel worthwhile if my kids excel. I feel worthless if I don't. I feel worthwhile if I'm being invited to do things with friends. I feel worthless if I don't. Other obstacles like uncertainty in the area of, of, of finances, health, habits that don't seem to want to die. These are just a few of the obstacles coming our way along the, the, the hike. This is the hike of life. This is the terrain. We, we may have had a, had a meal during some one-on-one time with God during that table, uh, table for two. But now we have an opportunity to have snacks. <laughs> now we have an opportunity to address those obstacles when they come our way with truth. That's why scripture tells us time and time again to pray in all circumstances. Eat in all circumstances. That's the spiritual discipline of snacking. Snacking between meals is not just a suggestion. It's the goal. God calls us to a feast. Our our growth depends on our eating and our drinking of grace. You know, without intaking and digesting and absorbing God's grace, that we were sinful, we were dead, but God, in His grace, has made us alive in Christ. Without absorbing His word into my mouth, without eating His blood and uh, eating His flesh and drinking His blood moment by moment, I am malnourished. We all will be malnourished. But when we do, man, it, it's just incredible to think of the possibilities. And there, there's a hurting, hungry world out there in Dover in particular. Do you know that your uh, ingesting and digesting and absorption of God's grace through time and his word is the answer they all need. Isn't that exciting? Just, just like little old Moses, God wanted to use little old Moses to bring his redemption to his people. God wants to use each and every one of us to do that same thing. Without one-on-one time, we never cultivate the the level of intimacy with him, with the one who redeemed us to have it with him. Without eating with one another, we we don't get the benefit of seeing Jesus in one another and encouraging one another. 
without eating on the run, without snacking, our, our, our relationship with God just becomes another compartment of life. We end up snacking on things that have nothing to do with, with God. So this is, the, this is the first of seven claims of Jesus. I am the bread of life. God doesn't want his, his kids, his sons and daughters, to be malnourished. He wants them to be strong. He wants to be healthy. He wants us to be fat. Resilient. Let's pray. Father, we really do praise you for your infinite goodness, your infinite grace, your infinite mercy, and your infinite love. At as we think about these things over, over the coming days and weeks, um, I pray for each and every one of us that we will feast at your table and will grow into the sons and daughters. You, you not only made us to be, you redeemed us to be and are restoring us to be and will one day bring us to be with you in your kingdom forever. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Would you stand and sing?